This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you, we just pray that as we go through these parables uh, of keeping watch, uh, that you will really help us to plumb the depths of what you're saying here and to really take them to heart. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Uh, I hate waiting. I really hate waiting. You know, like uh, you put your food into the microwave and two minutes is too long for the food to cook. And I think that many people in our generation also don't like waiting. They're not good at waiting, right? You know, you go to the traffic light and uh, the moment the light turns green and you wait one second, they expect you to go off already. Or people take, you know, they get frustrated if the web page takes more like two seconds to load up or the computer is slow in booting up. And I think we're all really impatient. We're not very good in learning how to wait. Today's passages are all about waiting. How to wait. What waiting is all about. What God wants us to do in waiting. So today in chapter 24 verse 3, it says the setting of what we are looking at today. So in chapter 24, verse 3, right, okay, today marks a milestone. There are no slides today, okay? So there's nothing to look at here, there's nothing to see, don't worry about looking out here. You've got to look at your Bibles, right? So 24, verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus one question, or actually a few questions, as Andrew Wong pointed out last week. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples wanted to know when and what. Okay, those were the questions that they asked. When will the temple be destroyed? When will Jesus come? What will be the sign of these things happening? But Jesus answered that these are the wrong questions. The when and the what questions are the wrong questions because nobody knows the time of Jesus coming again. Nobody knows the time of the end of the age. So if nobody knows when Jesus is going to come again and nobody knows the time of the end of the age, then what is the right question? The right question is the how question. How are we to wait for the return of Jesus? How are we to wait for the end of the age? And this is such an important question that Jesus doesn't just give one parable to answer the question. He gives five parables to answer this question of most deep and profound relevant parables of how we are to wait for the return of Jesus. So it begins by chapter 24, verse 42 to verse 44, which is the first parable. Therefore, he says, keep watch because you do not know at what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Now, the command that is given here in verse 42 is of keep watch, being prepared, being vigilant, because Jesus' coming, the end of the age coming, is like a thief coming in the night. Unfortunately, this parable 
it's kind of like a bit meaningless to Singaporeans because we so rarely get robbed. right? So we don't understand what Jesus is talking about. What does it mean, the thief? Are there any thieves in Singapore? We don't even know how many thieves have we met in Singapore. Right? But I have been robbed many times, so I can appreciate this parable. Uh, when I was two years old, uh, some robbers broke into my family home. They tied up my parents and they stole the jewelry and alcohol and money and they left. When Cheryl was staying uh, with relatives in uh, Sydney, she was robbed five times when she was studying university. I had my car stolen one morning after I parked it to go to work near the train station in Australia. Every single time, we didn't expect the thief to come to rob us, right? I mean, uh, I still remember vividly in my mind the disbelief when I walked up to where I remember I parked my car and it wasn't there anymore. And I was like, I'm sure I parked my car here. Where's my car? And I like, walked up and down the street like several times thinking, I'm sure I parked it here this morning, but it was gone, right? It was the same thing when my, uh, when um, Michelle walked home. You know, I was like, hey, I'm sure I left these things here, but now they're gone. And how come the door is not locked anymore? And I'm sure for my parents, when they woke up in the middle of the night uh, to have thieves shining the torchlight in their face, they also were shocked. Because that is the definition of a thief coming in the night. I mean, obviously, the thief doesn't always have to come in the night, but that's when they usually come, when you least expect it. And that's why the lesson from this parable in verse 44 is that you must always be ready. You must always be ready, and that is what keeping watch in Jesus' idea is. You must always be ready for Jesus' return. Is that you? Is that me? Uh, I like the quote by Andrew Wong last week where he flashed up here on the slide where he says, you know, we must live as if Jesus is coming in the very next hour. If Jesus were to come at 4.45, at 5.55, right, 45, would you be ready for him? Because that is what this parable is about. Because we don't know when Jesus is coming, so we cannot slack off any time. So there are people who say to me, oh, you know, uh, I'm very busy at the moment in my studies, so for the next year and a half, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to come to Bible study, or I'm not going to come to church, I'm not really going to focus on God, because this is more important to me now. Or, you know, I've got this job that I've got to take, or this relationship I've got to focus on, so I'm not really going to be very serious about God during this time. But that is exactly the wrong attitude if Jesus comes like the thief in the night. Because what happens if Jesus comes in the middle of that time when you are not ready? Because you don't expect Jesus to come. Or what happens if, if it is God's will that you should die suddenly at the moment where you are just the least ready for Jesus to return? What will happen then? Well, Jesus goes on. And he moves on from the parable of the thief and the owner to the parable of the two servants. And this is a, an expansion. And I think that's what's so, so fantastic about looking at these five parables in a row. In a sense that they kind of like bounce off each other. They sort of dovetail into each other and they sort of build on one another. So the end of the age is like the thief coming in the night. And Jesus says, keep watch. Constantly, right? Then he gives you another parable about two servants. 
the faithful and the wise servant, and the wicked servant. And here we have a scene which is very, very common in the ancient world because, you know, when we think of servants now, we always think of our domestic maid, right? But in the ancient world, uh, people had many, many servants, many, many maids, and usually they had a, a, like a master servant who was in charge of the other servants. So, a very familiar scene, a very common scenario was the master going away. He's probably doing some business or going away to do something. And he, he puts, puts you or somebody in charge of the rest of the servants. And you have to keep fulfilling your duty and responsibility. And that is to look after the other servants, distribute the food, run the business, look after the family estate. The wise and the faithful servant is the one who keeps fulfilling his duties, keeps performing his responsibilities day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, as long as he or she is required to, till the master comes back. Then when the master comes back, what happens? Well, it says there that the master comes back and he says to the servant, because you've been faithful, then I'll put you in charge of all my possessions. But the wicked servant says to himself, Oh, my master is going away for a very long time. And he begins to slack off. And not only does he or she slack off, but begins to abuse the servants, the other servants. He beats them up and he begins to meet a bad company and get drunk. And verse 50 to 51, his fate is very different from the wise and the faithful servant. In verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you really need to be really sharp and focusing on the parable here. Because at this point, this verse goes outside of the parable. It's no longer symbolic of the ancient world, but looking at reality. And what he's saying is, the wicked servant, this is what happens to him or to her. He will be cast out of the presence of the master. He will be cut to pieces. He will be assigned a place to the hypocrites. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is no longer parable. This is reality. This is what happens to the wicked servant. Because this man is not ready for the return of the master. He comes back at a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he was not aware of. And what it shows is that keeping watch is so important because if you don't keep watch in the proper way, then this will be your fate. This is not a parable. The last part, verse 51, is the reality. You'll be passed out of God's presence into a place where you'll be crying and weeping and gnashing your teeth. Now this shows us that keeping watch in the way that Jesus understands is not just sitting there doing nothing. Right? It's not as if, you know, you come to church week after week and maybe go to Bible study once in a while and you feel like, well, 
you know, I'm ready. I'm keeping watch effectively. This parable seems to be saying that in a very real way, that to be the wise and faithful servant, you need to fulfill the duties and responsibilities that Jesus has given to us. Now, obviously, we're not here to distribute food to other servants, right? But as we've been reading through the book of Matthew, the duties and responsibilities have been shown to us in things like the Sermon on the Mount. We are not to hate, we are not to lust, we are not to lie, we are to pray, we are to be generous. So there are many things in which, as we wait for the return of Jesus, we must do and we must be doing when Jesus returns. And it means that we must be doing all the time because the return of Jesus is like the thief in the night. So there must never be periods in our life where we allow ourselves to slack off and not be wise and faithful in the way that we're living. Where we allow ourselves to be wicked and to deny the responsibilities that God has given us to do. And all those responsibilities are here that we've read about in the book of Matthew. Now, you can see how the thief in the night parable flows into the parable of the two servants. And now we're given another parable, the parable of the ten virgins, right? So if you look at your Bible, it says, the parable of the ten virgins. I think that's a silly title. Because actually, it's not so much the parable of the ten virgins, but it's the parable of the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. You see, if you notice all the parables, it's always do, dealing with like three sets of character, right? The master, and then there are two sets of people, right? Here there's the bridegroom, and then two sets of people. So here we don't have the ten virgins, we have the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. Now, in the ancient world, you know, uh, their wedding celebrations uh, were, were, were quite different, but actually it's quite similar to Singapore like, in a way. Like. Because the bridegroom would leave his house early in the morning, like we do in Singapore. And then like in Singapore, you know, you go to the bride's house and then, you know, they make them eat sort of, sort, eat sort of weird food and make them perform all sorts of things to get through the door, right? Okay, well, in the ancient world, they didn't do all that stuff. But they had to travel to the bride's house and do all these rituals and obligations and ceremonies. And they'll come back late at night to the bridegroom's house. And then they would have cere- I mean, celebrations that went on for days. Okay, so they really knew how to party in the ancient world, right? Here, you know, you just have one night. Over there, the, the celebration went on for days. So what's happening here is that these ten virgins were probably the, the bride's mates. And they were sent from the bride's house to go to the bridegroom's place to sort of wait to prepare some stuff or whatever early on and then wait for the wedding party to come back together to celebrate with everybody in the bridegroom's house. Now, in the ancient world, if you knew that you were waiting for someone at night, one of the most essential things that you needed was your lamp. Now, your lamp was not like, you know, those little itty-bitty things with the candles in it, but usually it was more like a stick with the cloth on top which was burning, right? So that you could, you could sort of find your way around. You know, it's like your ancient 
torchlight lah, okay? Because you know in the olden days they don't have gas lamps or electric lamps, right? It's really dark. So the most important thing, if you knew you were going to meet someone at night, was your lamp. Now there were two sets of virgins, the two bridesmaids, uh, you know, groups of bridesmaids. The both of them had their lamps because everybody has their lamps. But five of them brought spare oil, right? They they brought spare oil for the journey. And at midnight, so they've been waiting a long time, right? The lamps are burning away. They're waiting for the wedding party to return. The cry cries out at midnight. The bridegroom is here. The the wedding party has arrived. So these ten virgins rush out to meet the wedding party as they're coming back, right? So you can imagine the scene. There's a there's somebody coming, and then the the wedding party is further behind. These virgins are rushing out to meet. The wedding party. But because they've been out for so long and it's so late, the lamp is dying. It's like, you know, your mobile phone, right? You got the cheap, lousy phone and the battery's dying. You really got to make an urgent phone call and, and you got no battery light left, right? Or, you know, you got torchlight and your battery is running out. So, these virgins who didn't have spare oil, as part of the parable, okay, we not we shouldn't read too much into it because you, you know there's a temptation in the parables that you try to read too much and think, why couldn't these other virgins lend their oil, right? What is it about the oil that they couldn't lend? Uh, who knows all these things? It's just part of the story, okay? That's not that's not the relevant thing. The part of the story that is relevant is the virgins that didn't have the oil couldn't sustain being with the wedding party. They had to go off somewhere to buy some more oil to keep their their lamps working. But by the time they bought the oil or begged and borrowed for oil, they came back. Everybody had already gone into the bridegroom's house and so they couldn't come into the bridegroom's house and celebrate. They were excluded from the wedding. Now there's no point us saying, how come they couldn't recognize them? You know, why were they so unfriendly? Surely it's the bridesmaid, right? I mean, how can they not recognize the bridesmaid? That's not part of the story. That's not what the parable is about. The parable is that if you cannot sustain keeping watch, if you cannot have the additional oil to keep going and persevering in keeping watch, then you are excluded from the great wedding celebration which is a symbol of heaven. Right Now, it's really interesting when you compare the two parables. In the parable of the, the two servants, it's almost as if the wicked servant didn't expect that the master would come back so soon. Right? It was like, hey, I think the servants, you know, like the servants thinking, the master's going to be away a long time and I'm going to slack off and I'm going to beat people up, I'm going to abuse them, I'm going to do wicked things, but the master came back too soon. But in the parable of the ten virgins, we'll just call it ten virgins, huh? the master came back too late. The bridegroom came back with the wedding party too late. They were not ready for the long wait. So in the parable of the two servants, the keeping watch, right, was that they the person didn't keep watch long enough and they didn't think that the master was coming back. In the second one, it was because the, the, the second set of virgins weren't prepared to wait for so long. 
And I think that that's exactly what keeping watch is about, isn't it? Because one of the temptations is we are not ready when we need to be ready. We think, ah, I can be slack off now and Jesus is not coming back tomorrow. The other temptation that we have is that I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and I'm struggling and I'm struggling. I've suffered and suffered and suffered. Maybe, you know, I've, I, because I'm a Christian, I have not been promoted at work. Because I'm a Christian, I didn't go out with this and, or that girl, and therefore I didn't get married, or I'm unhappy, or, you know, because I'm a Christian, I've done all these things for God, but I'm still waiting, and, and, I, and I give up. You know, it's so sad, isn't it? Have you ever met people like that, who've been Christians for many years, and many, many years, and then all of a sudden, you find out that they're not Christian anymore. And I think that's exactly what this passage is talking about. It's like they are not prepared for the long run. They're not prepared for the long wait. Just like the virgins who only have their lamps and they don't have the additional oil, they sort of don't have the perseverance and the persistence for the long run. But this is the lesson of keeping watch, right? Because, as I read somewhere, it is not the hardest trials that actually make it hard for Christians to keep going. It is the longest trials. right? It is to keep persevering and persevering and persevering, even though it seems like it is so far away. You know, I've persevered for so long. The journey has been so extended that, you know, I feel like giving up. But, but this passage is saying, no, you've got to keep persevering, keep persevering, because, because it's going to be a long time. It may be a long time before Jesus comes. Now, the next two parables build on this idea of waiting and watching. Uh, on their own, they're actually very profound and deep, and, and I'm sure during the Q&A time you have lots of questions. Again, in the parable of the talents, um, in the new NIV translation, I, I noticed that it talks about uh, the talents as abilities. And I think that's close to it. Uh, because usually in the modern world, when we think of talents, right, we think of, oh, so-and-so has a talent for playing the piano. So-and-so has the, a talent for playing tennis. Uh, you know, so-and-so is very good at, uh, you know, uh, I don't know whether you can call playing computer games a talent. But anyway, in the ancient world, talent, right, is, 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 is actually seen as money, earning power. That's why in the new NIV it talks about five bags of gold. Uh, so basically what the master does is he gives money to uh, his servants and he expects the servants to work the money. So look at what it says there. Um, in uh, verse 16, the man who received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So the master gave three sets of servants different amounts of talents or earning power. He gave one ten, he gave another five, and he gave another one. Now the amounts really are irrelevant. You know, five, ten, Two, three, four, five. The numbers don't really mean anything. Uh, for the ones receiving ten and five, they they were diligent. 
they were faithful and they worked that talent and grew that talent. And when the master came back, they both received the same thing. So if you look in the Bible, verse 21 is exactly the same with verse 23. Same words. Everything's the same. Both times the master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share my your master's happiness. So both the one who received 10 and the one who received 5 and they worked faithfully at it, both of them, the master came back and said, Oh, look, well done, right? Uh, come and share the joy of the master and come and have more things. The focus of the parable really is on the man who received one talent. We learn that he does nothing with that talent or the bag of gold. He digs a hole, he buries it in the ground. And uh, why does he do that? Okay, now we are meant to pay very close attention to what the man says. So look at verse 24. Because what he says really requires us to think a, a bit more about uh, his answer, right? Then the man who received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your goal in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, in the Bible, this word hard has always used in a negative way. Right? So when I say you're a hard man, right? He's not saying that, you know, you're like a, what's that fast and furious guy? The big guy? The guy with all the muscles sprouting out everywhere? Right, he's not saying that you know you're like a muscly, strong fellow, right? Huh? Vin Diesel, that's right, Vin Diesel, right? He's not saying you're a hard man, right? Or Jason Statham, whatever, okay? He's saying that God is a hard man in a negative way. You're an unreasonable person. You know, you're not a reasonable person. You're not a reasonable person, why? Because you profit from what you don't work at. You reap what you do not sow, and you benefit where you haven't actually done the hard work. Now, if we understand it that way, we can see that the servant really doesn't quite like the master very much, right? In fact, the reason, in a way, why the servant doesn't want to work the talent is because the master, in his mind, is a selfish person who is not going to share the rewards of his labor. Isn't that what he's saying? You're a hard man. You're not go- you know, you reap where you don't sow, you profit where you don't work. Basically, if I work this talent and I get profit, you just keep the profit and I won't get anything. That's what he's basically saying. But that's not true, right? Because we've already seen that the other two people, the one who received 10, the one who received 5, they got more possessions and they shared in the master's joy. So this servant, in a sense, really doesn't love the master and doesn't really want to serve the master. And that's why God, in verse 26 to 30, calls him a worthless, wicked and lazy servant. Now, let's look at verse 26 to 30 because this is going to be a bit controversial. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. So throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you can see that at the very end of the parable, it moves outside of the parable format into the reality. Right? Where it talks about how this worthless servant will be thrown onto the darkness outside the presence of God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And basically, the talent that he was given is taken from him and given to other people who were faithful with their talents. Now this shows us that faithful waiting, faithful watching, means that we need to use the so-called talents or I like what the NIV says, the abilities that God has given us and to work those abilities, those capacities, those capabilities. Not for our own enjoyment, or not for our own ends, but for the Master. And because of our service to the Master and love for the Master. You know, one of the problems is that we can so often think uh, that as we wait for Jesus' return, Basically, it is a passive waiting. We just wait and do nothing. But that's like taking the talent and burying it in the ground. right? But God doesn't expect us to do that. God expects us to use our capabilities and resources and apply them to building His kingdom, doing His work. And when He comes back, we will share in the Master's joy. I remember reading... Uh, uh, article a few months ago about how we have different capacities and capabilities as we age. So when you're young, you have lots of time talent, but not much money talent, so to speak, right? Because you know you got lots of time but no money. So when you're young, you work your time to serve God. But as you get older, you have families, you have jobs, you have lots of responsibilities. Like Nick, you have kids now. You know, you've got, you've got less and less time. You're tired all the time. Right? Then you have less time resources to serve God. But then you have other things which you can then use to serve God. But the challenge for us as we read this parable is, are we like the wise and faithful servant? Or are we like the wicked and lazy servant? Because if you look at me in verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. This idea of settling accounts is a commercial accounting term. It basically means that the master comes back and looks in a very you know, business-like manner in how you have used your capacity, your resources, and your abilities. And he says, have you been wise and faithful, or are you wicked and lazy? So if Jesus comes back and views your life, how are you using your talents, so to speak? 
Uh, are you doing it in the sense where when the master comes back, he will see you and say you are wicked or whether you are faithful, whether you are wise or whether you are lazy. Now the last uh, parable, the parable of the sheep and goats, is actually considered by some people not to be a parable. Some people say it's not really a parable because it's so straightforward. You know, everything is explicit. There's no parabolic language. There's not much symbolism. The only parable elements in it is the sheep and the goats. And the picture is of two groups, right? The sheep and the goats. Because apparently in the ancient world, the sheep and the goats, they used to go to the field and eat the grass together. But then at night, they would be separated between the sheep and the goats because the sheep with their wool, they got no problem with the cold. But the goats, because they have no wool, they kind of like have to clump together to keep warm. If not, they will sort of get really unwell and fall sick. Lah. Now, this parable has a lot of shocking elements to it. The first element is that the sheep are given entry into heaven and they kind of like ask, why are we given entry to heaven? And Jesus says it's because in verse 35, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger and you invited me, when I needed clothes and you clothed me, I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then these sheep asked, the righteous sheep asked, but when did we see you hungry? and feed you? And when were you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in and needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So it's really striking, right? Because Jesus keeps using the word I, 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 I. I had no clothes, you put on clothes. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was sick, you you helped me. I was in prison, you visited me. But that means that every time we look at a Christian, the least Christian, brother or sister, and we help them, we are actually helping Jesus himself. Jesus is synonymous with his Christian brothers and sisters. And the least of them. And that's a shock, isn't it? Because on that basis, that is why the sheep find entry into heaven. And that is linked to the parable of the talents, right? One of the ways in which we wait and keep watch for Jesus is to genuinely show love and care and concern Christian brothers and sisters. Now this is not salvation by works, right? It is not saying that, oh, you know, because you saved uh, this brother, because you fed this sister, because you clothed someone, that you go into heaven. Because the sheep themselves are surprised that this is the criteria, right? But rather, these things that they do are actually evidence that they are waiting in the right way. That they are not passively waiting, but that they are actively waiting by showing love to Jesus Christ in brothers and sisters in Him. The shocking thing 
is that the goats are completely excluded from heaven. Now, when we first read this parable, and if you read it by itself, you can sometimes be mistaken in thinking that the goats are non-Christians. But the shocking thing is the goats are Christian people. The goats are people who go to church. The goats are those people in Bible study. In verse 44, they, the goats, will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? You see, they say to Jesus, Lord, that means that these people are Christians because they're confessing Jesus as Lord. But yet, these people who confess Jesus as Lord, who are Christians, do not find their way into heaven. In fact, it says that they will go to eternal punishment. And the reason is because they do not actively show love and concern and care while they are waiting for Jesus to come. Now this is really shocking because it actually means that there are people who are Christians but because they are not actively showing love and concern and care while waiting for Jesus to come, when Jesus comes one day, they will be completely blown off their feet because they are not going to heaven. Because they are not actually actively showing faith in their life to people. Now, it is very important for us to see that what is being spoken of here is not just general acts of charity, right? You know, some people say, oh, you know, if I give money to World Vision, or, you know, I just generally, generically buy tissue paper from the, the, the lady at the hawker center. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that when you help Christian brothers and sisters, you are actually helping him. So it's very specific here that as we love in active ways the brothers and sisters in Christ, we're actually loving Jesus and we are the sheep. And the goats are actually Christians who fail to love and show faith in an active way while waiting for Jesus. And as a result, they're not actually going to heaven. Now, someone once said that this is a very important thing to remember. I remember when I first became a Christian, I always thought, okay, if I wait for Jesus to come, as long as I don't sin, then I'm waiting for Jesus, okay. But I think there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. You know, there's a difference. There's sins of commission. That means I do something wrong. I commit a sin, a sin of commission. I did something wrong. But there's also sins of omission. That means I think I should have done something, but I omitted doing it. And this is this is what this passage is talking about. That means that there are things I should be doing. I should be helping uh, a Christian brother and sister who is thirsty or hungry or needy or in, in need of encouragement because they're in prison or they're sick. But by not doing so, I've actually committed a sin of omission. And we must be very clear that waiting and watching for the return of Jesus is not just about not doing sins of commission, but also not doing sins of omission. That means I must actively be doing things which I know God wants me to do as a Christian. 
So in summary today, I hope that you've sort of felt a bit of the power of these parables. If you haven't, it's not, it's not the Bible's fault, it's my fault. But I think it's quite, quite clear the complexity of what it requires for us to wait and keep watch for Jesus. First of all, the parable of the thief and the owner teaches us that the return of Jesus can happen at any time. Like the thief in the night. So therefore, we must always be keeping watch and ready for the return of Jesus. The parable of the two servants teaches us that Jesus can return sooner than we are ready. And as a result, we must always be ready for the return of Jesus, not be wicked like the wicked servant. The parable of the two sets of virgins teaches us that Jesus' return could take a long time and we've got to be prepared for the long haul. The parable of the talents and the sheep and the goats teaches us that faithful waiting means that we must be actively doing things and actively doing responsibilities and showing genuine love and concern and compassion, especially for other Christians. In conclusion, I want you to compare the picture of heaven and hell in the parables. Heaven is seen as entrusting, being entrusted by all of God's possessions, is seen as an inheritance of everlasting life, it is seen as receiving the kingdom and sharing in God's joy and happiness. Hell is like being thrown out of the presence of God into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is eternal punishment. Where would you rather be in eternity? If Jesus came right now, where would you be? Would you be right with him? Would he say to you, good and faithful servant, come and share my joy with me? Or would he say to you that you are wicked and lazy and worthless, only to be cast out of his presence into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? I pray for each and every one of us that we will keep watch and be vigilant and active in waiting for the return of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.